All right, welcome into Loserville, folks. Uh, first note, a, a sincere apology. We have been um, dilatory in getting new episodes up, and it has to do with a variety of exciting announcements which will uh, which we will make in the future. But um, just know that I've been working very hard, not completely slacking off and ignoring your uh, morning drive needs. Um, I am... I, I, we're doing a show today I've wanted to do for a long time. Um, George Mason is a senior pastor at Wilshire Baptist Church. His bio on the website says that he he started that position in August of 1989. And you will have to forgive the uh, old guy reminiscing uh, segment of this program, listener, Um I am pretty sure I met George Mason in July of 1989. Um, is that possible, George, that I met you like right before you got that job? Well, I'm trying to remember exactly when it was, but I know that I preached a youth camp for Trinity Baptist Church in San Antonio, and you were in the youth group. That That's exactly how I met you. But I, I really... I'm having this. Uh, I'm having this bizarre, like um, Billy Pilgrim, unstuck in time feeling of how is it possible that you that you're still uh, that you've been there that long and that you've done so much at Wilshire, and it, it, I honestly just have that feeling like it was sort of yesterday when we met, and I I must have been 16 years old. I guess so. <laughs> well, we were. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that, listener. That that is truly old guy stuff, and we should have be, have more dynamic younger people on the program at some point. But for today, you're stuck with us. Um, George does a number of things in addition to um, pastoring Wilshire Baptist, which I must say is one of the the best churches in town. Um, many many good people in that congregation. Uh, he's the founder of a program called Pathways to Ministry, which is a training program for clergy that has placed people in many churches, um, has nothing to do with the band ministry that I saw in 1992 at Lollapalooza, which definitely was not trying to get me closer to God at all. Um, and uh, he runs Faith Commons, which is uh, a uh, ecumenical, what do we say, interfaith I think interfaith has replaced ecumenical in the in the common parlance. A uh, group of faith leaders. Faith has replaced interfaith. Okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and is the host of a brilliant podcast called Good God that I cannot uh, recommend strongly enough to you. You will, uh, if uh, you'll learn a lot more from Good God than you will ever learn from Loserville. And I once heard George introduce himself as the last University of Miami quarterback you've never heard of. Um, the uh, I, now it, since that introduction, I will note that the University of Miami has disappeared from college athletics almost entirely. So maybe there are other quarterbacks I haven't heard of from Miami, but um, I, I heard of you, but not because of football. Are, are you aware that there's this very rude? Uh, website um, called sportsreference.com. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it, 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 it tracks your statistics. And in 19, 
77, apparently your most productive year at quarterback. Uh, you were 22 for 52 with uh, two TDs and one interception. Okay. Well, that tells you why I'm a Baptist preacher. <laughs> um, also, a thing that I learned about you that I didn't know until I Googled you is that uh, you've been broadcasting your sermons on WRR. Yes, for 32 plus years. Um, I need to... I. I need to start listening to that. that. I mean, obviously, it's gotten very easy to find pastor's sermons with the advent of the Internet. Um, I, I grew up in Trinity Baptist, as we have established, and uh, my pastor, the, uh, the greatly missed Buckner Fanning, had uh, a kind of a pioneering program of sending people cassette tapes with his uh, sermons on them. We had many members of the congregation who were not uh, capable of coming to the church for mobility reasons or, or otherwise that, uh, that listened on cassette tape. Um, and it's just much easier to, uh, to find sermons now. And honestly, I would recommend those to people. Um, George is a, uh, in addition to being a good religious leader, is also a thinker, and uh, which is why we have him on the podcast today. And I'll tell you, really, my thought process here, George, is that this is Dallas's only real podcast about local politics um, and policy. We don't just stick to politics. And the, the, the thing that I have seen uh, with you and with other um, faith leaders in town is uh, more activism in local politics than I recall um, from growing up. And, and, you know, having grown up in the church and having grown up in local politics, I would know. Um, it, there, there, there was a period of time, I think you might uh, agree, where uh, local religious leaders didn't have that much impact on local politics. W what changed? Well, I think uh, one thing that changed is that some religious leaders became very involved in politics, uh, more in uh, the conservative uh area of uh, religious life and uh, in doing so uh, it, it sort of shook I think many of us from uh, the stupor of uh, thinking that uh, we all had lanes that we had to stay in if we were to honor the notion <coughs> of the separation of church and state. Uh, the, you know, the, the idea that uh, religion and politics are separate uh, is not really what the First Amendment means. Uh, the First Amendment means that, um, uh, that, that religion and government uh, should be separated in such a way as, as the government is neither hostile toward nor favorable toward religion. And religion uh, should not uh, seek to establish itself in, in government. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, that religious people should not be able to speak from their religious convictions into the public square. I'm going to take this recording, label it amicus, and send it to the Supreme Court. 
about a thousand times. I, I, I wish there were nine people who would listen to what you just said. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so I think what, what happened is for a long time, we, uh, we had this sort of, uh, uh, notion that there is such a thing as a, a naked public square, uh, to coin a phrase, uh, and that, um, you know, we need to keep our religious uh, language and convictions out of our public life. Uh, but what we know is that there, there is always going to be a value system that comes from somewhere that will inform our politics. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with us acknowledging that and then saying, what works for the common good here? And uh, so uh, I, I think that the, the idea that we should become involved in uh, political life does not mean that, that one side takes the Republican Party and the other side takes the Democratic Party. And we just sort of line up as if we have two religious worldviews and it represents the parties, even if often that does seem to be the way it is. Um, nonetheless, we, we, should, we should critique everyone uh, based upon our religious values, and sometimes that cuts both ways. So, uh, yeah. So I think I think what we've we've learned is that um, we can become involved, and that we should become involved because if we're not, there are other forces that are going to have the, the greatest say, and it usually has to do with uh, money and uh, with. Uh, social and cultural dominance that has not been good for everyone. So uh, I, I think we have to be involved. That that all makes sense to me. Like it, it it never made sense that church didn't have a place in public discussions. Um, I, I I I think like you were were not. I was not thrilled with the rise of the sort of. Um, I don't know, the Second Baptist Mafia, the, the Houston uh, religious political leaders who sort of tied the Baptist church to the Republican Party. Um, I see that uh, one of them is now facing serious charges of pedophilia. Um, I, don't, I don't think those two things are connected, but uh, it, it was sort of a tragedy for the Baptist church that um, it was more or less co-opted in a way by the, the Republican Party. Um, but the thing that I've seen more recently on a local level is, you know, I think local politics, one of the, the beneficial things about it is that it does not have to be viewed through a partisan lens. Um, I've always, you know, asked people which party exactly was their water bill coming from. Um, I, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think that you have to have that overlay where you have a congregation that may include people from both parties of good faith, where you're, you're advocating for something that members of your congregation would prefer you not. Um, and so that, that's where I have, it, during my time on council, one of the things I kind of became interested in was the intersection of morality with governance and can is it possible to govern and to write policy and write ordinances that reflect a morality? And I'm convinced that it is possible, but it's it's uh, 
it's difficult. Uh, you know, people can't really always agree on exactly what is good values. We think we share common values. And when we talk about them, maybe we do. But I, I think people start from very different places uh, when when asked, you know, what is right and what is wrong. We, we, we want to think of those things as sort of absolutes. And in practice, it's hard to it's hard to find the uh, an agreed upon definition of right and wrong, especially when you're talking about the water bill. Like what, what, what's the point of morality if, if we're talking about technocratic government? So you and many others in town have been active on local issues, um, particularly uh, I would call them equality issues. Um, where, where do you see your authority coming from and your sort of, I guess your plan for engagement in the public square. So I think when you start talking about morality and public policy, uh, the, the tendency is to divide these two things into personal morality and social morality. And it's difficult to legislate personal morality. I think there's an awful lot. Uh, there, there have been many attempts to that perhaps, but, uh, but I don't think they, they easily succeed. We, uh, saw that the Massachusetts Bay Colony didn't uh, do real well at that. <laughs> but, but in terms of, of, of social morality, I, I think what we begin with in our democratic republic is the notion that really all people are created equal. And of course, it's taken uh, you know the, the entire history of our American project uh, to work out what all men are created equal means, and we still haven't gotten there fully yet, in terms of making sure that that essential dignity of every human person is uh, represented in policies that uh, create equal opportunity for people. Uh, you know, there's, there are always going to be different outcomes uh, that people have based upon you know, their own initiative and, and the way they uh, take advantage of those opportunities. But, but we want there to be a fairly level, as level as possible, uh, playing field. Uh, so that uh, regardless of whether you are a man or a woman, uh, white, black, uh, Latino, uh, immigrant, uh, born here, uh, LGBTQ, single, married, whatever the case may be, that you, you have an opportunity that is uh, not weighted against you uh, because of the, uh, because of, of how you were born or where, what zip code you, you live in. Uh, but you have, you have full uh, opportunity to do that. And that has not been historically true in Dallas, Texas, nor has it been true in America generally. Uh, but here locally, we have the opportunity to address some of those things. And you have to speak honestly, uh, as you have been on your podcast, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, about the Thank you for listening. I'm always, I'm always surprised when I meet someone who's actually listened to an episode. A neighbor of mine came up to me at, at, a, at a party last weekend and was like, Hey, great, great podcast. Are you ever going to do it again? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think this, this is the thing. Look, uh, religious people have a vision of the world that is informed by the biblical narrative. And that biblical narrative always begins with an Exodus story. 
okay? That Exodus story is the, the foundation of everything. And it's, it basically says that God has a particular sensitivity toward people who are living in economic and social oppression. Uh, and so uh, their work was frustrated, their opportunity to thrive was, was held back, and God delivered them, and then gave them the law to self-manage uh, so that they could live not because of someone else's dictates, but by their own code, uh, a, a code uh, that, that would care for neighbor and uh, would create an opportunity for human flourishing. It all begins there for us in terms of a biblical vision of what the world should be based upon our faith tradition. And uh, that, that of course, grows out of the Hebrew scriptures, but the Christian scriptures, um, you know, continue that tradition. And so we have the idea that the world is not the way it is simply um, because it must be. It's not just fate. It's a decision that we all make about how the world is organized. And so we have a vision of a world in which uh, people are all able to claim their full dignity and have it rec recognized uh, as being made in the image and likeness of God, and that they have the opportunity to flourish. And so uh, to, to me, to people of faith, uh, the question is, if our policies here in Dallas are, uh, are, are destining people to poverty and to generational um, misery, uh, what do we do about that? We, we don't just say, well, gee, that's the way it is because the world is a difficult place and some people are lucky and some people are not. No, we've made intentional decisions across uh, decades in this city that have uh, foreordained some people to flourish uh, more, more so than others. Now, that doesn't mean that hard work and education and individual initiative matter for nothing, that families and all of that, that's not the point. It's, the point is that when we load the deck in favor of some and against others, uh, that's not fair and it's, it's something that we have to call into question that's what biblical prophets did. It's what the church has to do if it's faithful to its overall mission. Yeah, but you know, they, they killed all those prophets. You're aware of this, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, this is also why it's uh, not easy for uh, pastors, uh, religious leaders to speak up because our congregations do not all see alike. And, you know, whether I'm preaching on Sunday morning or speaking to the city council, uh, the fact of the matter is I will have people who disagree with me. And it, life is harder when we get involved like this uh, for religious leaders. It just is. But then again, I mean, that's also our calling. Uh, the calling is not, you know, just to figure out how to have the easiest way. How do you have that discussion, though, with your congregation? When you say something that not everyone in your congregation agrees with, have you all had the sort of, I hate to say meta, I think it's kind of a meta discussion about what is my involvement as, you really can't just be George Mason at City Council. You're always going to be senior pastor of Wilshire Baptist Church. How do you, do, how do you, how do you and your congregation communicate about the bounds uh, under which you can 
use that authority because that that's really the you know that's the basis of the restrictions in the internal revenue code that's the basis of the idea of separation of church and state is that the one of the ideas is that the authority of the religious leader is not inappropriately used uh, you know in order to advantage the the denomination or the church um, and I, I obviously I've never seen you take a position that I thought was sort of uh, in conflict with those principles, but what, what's that conversation with people in your congregation like? Well, for one thing, it's a reminder that this is also why uh, I am ordained and the IRS considers me, therefore, to be self-employed. Uh, that, that's a distinction most people don't realize. So I actually am uh, not employed by the church. Uh, as uh, in, in such a way that they uh, are in charge of my uh, my work per se. I, I, I mean, I, I hate to put it in sort of ethereal terms. I work for God, you might say. You know, but, uh, Me too. But, but yeah, right. but, but I am contracting to the church, and so uh, the church, of course, can say at any point, okay, you know. You really are disregarding in your ministry the vitality of our congregation and the integrity of it. You can go your own way if you want, but you don't even want to represent us. Well, I get that, and, and there's always that that place. But it, but it begins with recognizing that, uh, first and foremost, uh, I, I have calling uh, to speak and to act uh, that is not just to serve the interests of a particular congregation but the larger vision of the kingdom of God. Well, I think you have a particular uh, set of experiences that maybe um, uh, equip you better to deal with those questions. Um, Wilshire uh, was, in, in its founding, a Southern Baptist Convention Church. The, as, as with many of our Baptist churches, the Southern Baptist Convention sort of left us um, in a way, um, it, as it became extremely conservative, um, reactionary, I might even say. Um, and then the, the Baptist General Convention of Texas, which is the state branch of the SBC, uh, had, had always been more um, flexible, welcoming, open than the SBC in general, but it could not get over uh, the idea of being open and welcoming to LGBT worshipers, um, or even, or even, God forbid, clergy, um, and uh, so Wilshire Baptist was one of the first. Um, I, gosh, if I say mainstream, that 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 loads a lot of meaning into into that word, but um, a larger. Um, congregation that had an internal debate about whether to um, change the rules of the church to be open and welcoming. And unlike other denominations, Baptist churches do not have central control. The denomination is is largely a branding exercise more than anything else. And uh, the so the, the, this is up to individual churches, and it's been fascinating to me to see how different churches have handled this. I, I was engaged in a legal dispute. Uh, well, actually, I never actually got engaged. I had a proposal that was not accepted. 
uh, on the, 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 the Episcopal Church, which has rebranded itself as TEC, which I think is kind of fun. Uh, the the uh, the the Fort Worth diocese uh, did not enjoy the national uh, denomination's decision to become open and welcoming to LGBT people, and sought to split away, and it created a a, a giant dispute over the property owned by the diocese. Uh, a very unfortunate dispute that uh, uh, was resolved badly at best, I would say. And so, fortunately for Baptist churches. That that the property issues don't come into the forefront, but what what was that process like for you uh, in sort of leading your congregation in that discussion? Well, it was a long time coming for me um, because you know when you're a pastor of a church, you have a sense of what are the shifts that are happening in people's minds and hearts about certain things, and it became clear to me that. Um, what used to be a matter of don't ask, don't tell in our church, we were never anti-gay. Um, it, it was just more about how do we how do we handle the, the reality of gay people in, in our congregation and their participation. And, you know, we, we always were welcoming. So the, the people who were against the decision that we made were, were mostly not people uh, who were uh, anti-gay, who hated gay people, who, you know, whatever. They, they, they were more or less people who were content with the fact that we uh, always had gay people and welcomed them and they could worship with us. But that came to be, just as it did with the U.S. military, it came to be uh, a, 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 an untenable practice where it was still a, a, a kind of separate but equal um, less than sort of approach to things in my mind. And uh, it, it, it was necessary for us to, to really face up to the matter and ask, uh, are we going to uh, live up to our own bylaws, which uh, had one class of membership and <laughs> did not uh, discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, I think it was always just sort of assumed, well, maybe, you know, uh, gay people, uh, you know, were not, uh, should not be uh, accepted into leadership in the church or whatever, but it was not written. So we didn't actually even change our, um, our, our church policy. We, we actually changed our practice and we affirmed our bylaws. The vote, the vote really affirmed our bylaws and just made explicit that uh, there would be no restrictions applied to LGBTQ vote that were not equally applied uh, to everyone else. And so that was really the vote. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, it, it was a um, contentious matter. It was difficult. Um, what happens often, I've learned in these matters, is that uh, when people are uncomfortable with the outcome, uh, they often do not speak to the issue itself. It's the process uh, that was unfairly uh, conducted. And so, uh, you know, if, if I've uh, never heard this before. No, no, we're, we're not leaving because of the, 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 the decision. We're leaving because of the way it came about, you know, uh, that kind of thing. It was just uh, not transparent or it was uh, whatever. And, you know, I. I I'm sympathetic that 
you know, if this is a really difficult thing and there, there's more than one way to go about something fairly. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, the bottom line is our church did what we thought was necessary and important, and that is to affirm every person as an equal child of God and as a sister or brother in Christ, um, a sibling in spirit, and uh, that there will be no restrictions. And uh, they can serve in any capacity. And let's get on with treating everyone with the same uh, lessons of freedom and discipline both that, um, that, that previously we had uh, applied pretty much only to uh, opposite sex oriented persons. So um, now we can uh, marry uh, gay people, uh, welcome trans people into the church and into leadership. The issue is not whether it's uh, anything goes, but it's that everyone uh, has the same standard of, uh, of discernment in our church as uh, in terms of their spiritual leadership abilities and all of that. So uh, it's kind of a non-issue now, to be honest, in our church. It's just like, um, well, that's so-and-so, and he or she is, um, you know, uh, capable of serving. So there you go. Well, I was going to ask about the effect because um, I think it, it. I think one of the things preventing congregations from having that discussion or slowing them, because I think everybody is sort of dealing with the issue at their own pace, um, is the idea of uh, loss of membership in the church. And and Wilshire did suffer some loss of membership from this decision, at least initially. But over the long term, what do you think the, the effect has been? We lost 300 members within a couple of months. Uh, it was a, a very deep and painful loss because many of the people who left were the people who had been uh, tremendous, uh, committed servants of the church and friends of uh, of our congregation and, and my friends too. Uh, very deep sadness about that, and I can't uh, I can't recommend to anyone that they enter into this with any illusions. Um, it, it will be painful uh, in, in some ways, but maybe not so much as it was five years ago for us. You know, because uh, times continue to change and people become more open. The good news is that. Um, for the most part, uh, those relationships have continued uh, to uh, be cordial and uh, we still run into people and they're not angry with us. They're, they just felt that you know, their own integrity about this meant that they couldn't stay. Okay, fine. Uh, then uh, probably 400 people have joined the church in the last four year, five years after 300 people left it. So uh, there are a lot of people who have come to us specifically because we have done what we've done. Uh, and they feel that for the first time they can come and be themselves. Now, those 400 people are not all gay. Uh, in fact, not that many of them are, but there are a lot of people who wanted to be in a church where that was possible. Maybe they have a gay child, maybe they have, you know, um, uh, you know friends who are gay. Uh, so, you know, we, we've also only done a few gay weddings. I mean, the, the thought that we were going to have suddenly <laughs> colors, you know, <laughs> colors or something, and, uh, 
uh, you know, it would be uh, a whole different thing. It's just not the case. It's just normalized behavior. It's people, uh, gay people who come to our church uh, aren't coming because they want to be the gay people at our church. They just, they want to be normal. They just, which they are. And so they want to be treated that way, not, they want to be treated equally, not specially. And so we've, we've moved on. Now, has it impacted our church negatively in terms of money and, um, and, and participation? Somewhat, yes, uh, it has, uh, because you know you can't take people who've been here for a long time, who've been super committed, and then suddenly replace them and it be an even swap. It's not. Um, we're a little smaller. Uh, we're uh, not as uh, rich as we were in terms of our uh, budget, but we've held in in there pretty well, I would say, and we've we didn't have to lay off any staff because of it. We've kept our programming up, and uh, and we we are really clear about who we are now. So that's exciting. Yeah, it's a uh, it, that that rhetorical tactic of projecting uh, extreme results from uh, contemplated actions. It infects everybody. I mean, it, it, you know, the when 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 churches are having this argument, they're the 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 side that says we we must maintain the traditional value of of exclusion, um, or 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 what standards are there? You know, it's this slippery slope argument, and it really all of this descends from a basic underlying. Um, assumption that LGBT people are less than, and it's it's a, on the other side. It can happen the same way. People who are promoting the idea of uh, inclusion sometimes fall victim to seeing the other side as uh, thoroughly um, without integrity and. Um, you know, capable of hating people on the basis of race, in addition to the basis of LGBT status, and the, the these are honestly the the rhetorical tactics work, and that's a, a tragedy. They work because people are weak-minded in some ways about the the messages that they will react to, um, and. You know, we're all human. We suffer fear. We suffer prejudice. And when people appeal to fear and prejudice, sometimes it works. Um, and I'm always fascinated with institutions that can have a nuanced discussion about something, uh, because certainly I've never worked in any that did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're making a really interesting point that that is more widely uh, applicable if we would think about it in, in terms of our. Uh, divisive politics today, and that is uh, we can raise more money and we can marshal passion uh, by demonizing our opponents and always assuming that they have the very worst intent in every position that they take, and that we have only angelic intent, <laughs> and that there's, you know, there's no duplicity in us at all. You know, so, but, but that actually doesn't advance the ball uh, culturally. It, it, it only just creates more conflict and, uh, and undermines the common good. So what does work uh, to move us along is, is, to, is to assume, to begin with, that you know, 
people actually may have sincere intent and that you, you might assume the best, uh, but it, it is still a trust and verify. Uh, thank you, Ronald Reagan. Uh, <laughs> you know, we, we still, we should, should start with trust, uh, but then we should make sure that that trust is honored uh, and, uh, and, and follow through with it. So uh, we're not going to create a civitas with a kind of spirit uh, in which everyone is pulling together if we're constantly uh, you know, undermining uh, the people with our rhetoric and, uh, and, and assuming the worst of people. Uh, we need to hold the crown over people's head and let them grow into it. Wow, that's a that's a very nice way to put that. Maybe you've thought about this for a minute. Um, so one of the ways in which uh, I saw faith leaders be effective at City Hall was that there are lead- political leaders who are very sensitive to the idea of moral leadership, and they ascribe moral leadership to certain religious leaders. Um, and when, I mean, the, it's just sort of a famous thing that when the black clergy shows up, uh, generally they can get uh, black politicians to vote the way they want. Um, and that, you know, obviously, depending on who the clergy is and who the politicians are, that can be for good or for ill. But one of the ways that uh, I saw faith leaders be extremely effective is in our discussion of decriminalizing small amounts of marijuana through the site and release program, which fortunately, no, this is one of those things I'm very proud of having done. And I'm also extremely proud that it no longer means anything that, that, uh, that's, that site and release is sort of the, is sort of irrelevant at this point because our our buddy John Cruzo has decided he's just not prosecuting any of this stuff. But it was incredibly helpful to have Southern Dallas black clergy show up to tell my black colleagues that this was not just an okay position to take, but it was the moral position to take. And that that has weight. And I think it's not, to me, it's not just weight of, um, I don't know, an inappropriate reliance on the metaphysical as opposed to, you know, good policy based on data. I think there is a value to a faith community that thinks of things in moral terms and can make the argument that way. Everyone, you know, everyone makes their decisions in a different way. And if, if one of the aspects uh, that, that moves them is the morality of a decision. I, I think that can be used for good. Right. So, uh, you know, in, in, in this particular case, uh, what, what was really being asked was not that um, we change a policy uh, that was previously uh, consistently applied, uh, but only that we consistently apply uh, <laughs> a, a policy that and, and say we support the decriminalization of uh, this small so you know, basically, if you were white and lived in North Dallas and you got caught with marijuana, you were not pro- 
prosecute. Period. Period. I, I mean, it was, you, you probably weren't even arrested. Right. I mean, the, the, so the, the point is that we were just applying something equally. The war on drugs was, now we can look back and historically say, not a race-neutral policy. Uh, the war on drugs was a race-specific policy. Uh, it was, it, it was a, a, another iteration of Jim Crow in our politics uh, through the criminal justice system. And it destroyed families uh, because the very practices that were common in uh, white adolescents and young adults uh, and were common among uh, people of color in the same way, uh, in, in, in one case, it was viewed as just youthful indiscretion and it was um, you know, taken care of. And it didn't end up harming uh, college careers or families or uh, progress professionally. And in another, it robbed people of hope. It consigned them uh, to uh, a life in and out of prison with a record and an inability to advance and uh, continue to destroy families. And, you know, that's just not okay uh, from uh, the position of people of faith. And it, it's not okay uh, when you're trying to build an equitable city. Well, I, I appreciated the help. It, you know, I appreciated the help I got on any issue because it often felt like I was going to need a lot of it, and I did. Um, but, what what are issues you see today that you think um, people of faith, leaders in the faith community, are engaged in or should be engaged in on the local level? The uh, police and criminal justice reform sort of springs to mind, I think, for anybody who's paying attention. But are there other things that you're thinking about or that your colleagues are thinking about for our city, our county, our local government? Yeah, so we can use the rest of the podcast, probably. <laughs> I, I didn't anticipate running out of questions on this deal, George. All right, so let's start with education and say that we, uh, we, we need to continue to improve public education uh, in Dallas, uh, and we've made some great strides. DISD is doing better and better, and obviously COVID has had a deleterious effect in lots of ways, but on everyone. Uh, but we have good leadership, we have, uh, we have the right direction uh, overall, and, and that's good. Uh, but the forces in Texas generally are still moving away from public education and toward uh, privatization. Uh, the, the charter school movement is not cut of one cloth because there are different kinds of charters uh, and uh, yet the, the state board of education and the commissioner do not seem willing to distinguish among those charters uh, and just think that pure competition uh, with the public schools uh, is uh, always going to be good as a matter of course. Uh, but I think uh, what we have to recognize is that there are forces that are profiting off of the movement away from public education as we have known it. And that's not going to be good overall. I think there are some people who believe, uh, and we have to be honest about this, that not until we have 
no real public education system, but simply vouchers for parents to decide where kids go to any school out there. Uh, you know, will will this reform movement be finished? I think that's a that's a real failure of imagination, and it also uh, denigrates the incredible work people do at, in in local public schools. And they are seldom credited with that because there is a narrative that always says if you're part of the traditional public schools, you really are consigning kids to uh, mediocrity and low standards and all of that. And if only you had enough money to send them to a private school or if you had enough political power to have more charter schools so that you could choose to go somewhere else, you would. Uh, I think I think that's, uh, that's a problem. So, uh, I, Public education and the support of it is important, and um, not demonizing every charter school or every charter school uh, uh, attempt, but recognizing that that uh, is the camel's nose uh, under the tent, and we have to be really careful that the whole tent is not uh, thrown over because of it. So there's that. Equal accountability for charter schools is what I would be after. Uh, to uh, what you get in public schools. And that's hard to achieve because it undermines the very nature of the charter school movement, uh, which is more about um, freedom from than freedom for. But that's, that's George's view of that. Uh, public education being one thing. Um, the, the next you're, you're actually, <clears throat> pardon me, you're a lot more uh, even-handed with charters than I am. The, the quality of the education that a charter school provides is sort of irrelevant to me when every single student that attends a charter on every single day that that student attends the charter takes a very uh, measurable amount of money out of the public school system. And so whether it is whether the charter school has merit as an educational institution or not, it is doing equal damage to the public school no matter how good or bad it is. And it's one of the things that I sought, you know, on city council to really curb is to use land use regulation to, to get rid of charter schools, even the good ones. And that's, um, that, you know, rhetorically, that's a position where people will then hold up these high performing charter schools with their charming executive directors, um, and say, uh, you know, how could you be against this? And the answer is from a structural standpoint, it's it's still bad for schools. And if you want to have an, an alternative, then there are private schools that do a wonderful job that don't really do anything much to damage our public education system. And so I, that's a that's a rhetorical position that I think everyone struggles with. It's easy to dunk on prime prep. It's a little harder when it's uplift. Well, that's right, and Uplift is the prime example of, of a school that actually is, I think, doing, or a system of charters that is actually doing more of what the charters were intended to do in terms of serving uh, low-income and at-risk kids and that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, yeah, I, I'm at odds with some of my you know, public school advocate friends about this, too. They, you know, I, they think I'm a little too soft on charters. A lot too soft on them, and they're you know rigorously um, against the reality of them. And I, all I would say is, look, we we're not going to end charters right now uh, by uh, 
just saying that all charters are bad. Uh, I think the first step is to put them in a position where they have to perform and justify their existence. Uh, and right now we don't have that level of accountability, I think. And once you do have that level of accountability, then you, you, you're in a better position uh, to um, you know, have a, a, a level playing field. But uh, public education is, is one of those things. And you know, technically, charter schools are public education. But uh, in reality, they operate like private schools. So this is a hybrid situation, and it, it, it needs uh, closer examination. Um, I would say uh, we, we need some uh, accountability about uh, policing uh, in, uh, the, in the different ways that we police in, in, in Dallas, uh, where essentially we have an undue uh, police presence throughout uh, poor communities in Dallas. Uh, and rather than viewing the presence of the police as friend, uh, they view it as uh, living in occupied territory. Uh, and that's uh, a, a change that has to happen. Uh, it's, it's one thing to say that police presence in so-called hot zones or whatever are driving down uh, violent crime. It's another thing to say that, you know, when when you get stopped on the excuse of uh, a taillight being out in uh, in one part of town, that that's going to lead to all sorts of things that it doesn't in another part of town. And that's just not okay. Uh, it, it, it undermines the sense of uh, a shared a supportive police and uh, and uh, and a feeling that law enforcement is doing its job equally and fairly because they're there to protect. Uh, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, and most of the time it doesn't feel that way in uh, communities of color. So there's a lot of work to be done there as well. Uh, I think uh, we have to get the homelessness situation um, uh, addressed, and happily it looks to me like we have a, a pretty significant plan to address that right now. Uh, I'm pleased about that, but the devil's in the details because at the end of the day, no matter how much money we put into this and how many partners we have and what strategy we have, ultimately, uh, we're still going to have to get uh, a change in spirit uh, in, the, in the city generally because the NIMBY problem is always going to be there. Uh, that is, if you're going to do permanent supportive housing, where are you going to do it? Well, you're going to have people that are going to be living in your neighborhood and automatically uh, that brings out people who say, you know, I'm all for this, just not, not here. Um, this is going to drive down my property values, it's going to increase crime, all that sort of thing. And we've agreed that there has to be an even distribution throughout all council districts uh, and I'm just waiting to see it happen. Uh, I, I want to see what kind of political will there is to uh, actually say we're not just listening to our neighbors, we're, we're, we're telling our neighbors that they have to accept that their responsibility for the whole community 
for this challenge. And so permanent supportive housing is absolutely important in this case. It works. The housing first approach works and it, it needs to be um, broadly applied. And that affordable housing, of course, is, uh, as you know, Philip, um, you've been talking about this forever. Um, you know, we, we have we have a system where we can only incentivize, um, but we can't uh, mandate anything uh, in affordable housing. And we're we're anywhere from what twenty to thirty housing affordable housing units short in Dallas. And uh, all this does is just create um, ongoing challenges because uh, families who then you know have to buy cars, they can't use public transportation, they have to live in uh, in, in, in far away from where they work, and uh, it, it creates more and more burdens on uh, low-income families. And we, we're just not a friendly city uh, to people who are of uh, working class uh, in, in the city. And uh, until the city is uh, even-handed about the fact that everyone is not going to be able to afford um, the, the price of, uh, of gentrified housing, uh, then, you know, we're not going to be a city that is vibrant uh, and that is really, truly inclusive. You know, um, it, the housing thing is something that's very dear to me. Um, uh, Melissa and I, as our little COVID project, started a, a real estate company, and we actually provide affordable housing. Um, not not a whole lot of it. Um, we're we're just getting started, um, but it was it was truly shocking to me to do lease up of our first project and see the the massive number of applications come in for the four units we were offering. You know, and people who sent us applications uh, at who had thirty thousand dollars a year in income, and uh, you know. A person who makes $30,000 a year in the city of Dallas simply needs subsidized housing. There's, there is no other answer. Um, the math, you know, I, I'm, I am, uh, I'm the rare lawyer who's sort of good at math and, uh, and math creates the closest things that we get to, uh, black and white answers. And, uh, I just, I don't know, this woman, you know, came to us and it was just heartbreaking. She's got a kid that she wants to have in our schools because they're phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, uh, madam, you make $30,000 a year. How is it that you don't understand that you need subsidized housing and, and wasn't really aware of how to do it or any of that stuff? And so, you know, fortunately, I've been privileged to, to represent, uh, you know, Larry and Ted Hamilton, who are probably operate more affordable units than anybody other than a public entity. And we, you know, we got her at least on the waiting list for their stuff, but there's a waiting list for everything. Melissa is, you know, sitting on the plan commission for district 14 now. And we, we have a friend who does real estate investing on the coasts and had seen these, what, what the industry is trying to call micro units. Um, and you can build these things and not put any subsidy in them, but because they're so much smaller, they become somewhat more affordable, and then they're permanently more affordable, which is something that the our incentive system cannot offer. We typically 
are buying 10, 15, or 30 years worth of affordability through whatever incentive we have, and then it it evaporates, and we've been extremely poor about tracking how many affordable units we still actually have available. And so, if you're if you're a if you're a renter who needs this kind of product, um, you you have already uh, been frustrated several times with false promises of uh, housing that you can afford. We we we're we are. I hope that you are right about the current. Uh, trend toward um, truly caring for the homeless. Um, but on the whole, the, in looking at the entire affordable housing picture, I still consider Dallas to be an extremely non-serious place. A lot of rhetoric, very little action. Right. And I, I do think this is the first um, time I've seen a real effort to address this and put uh, all the parties together to do so. But as I said, it's one thing to announce a plan. It's another thing to see it implemented. And we're, we're going to have to see uh, whether that whether that happens. As a whole, I, I want to say it's not just about issues in my mind in Dallas, Philip. It's, it's, about, it's about a culture that is oriented toward uh, business first. And the making of, uh, uh, of money that then can be turned into charitable dollars yeah. that will then uh, support efforts that actually are, yes, doing some good, but are also further enfranchising the reputation of the people who give the charitable dollars. So... You know, what, what government is supposed to do is to represent everyone and to see to it that everyone has an opportunity to participate fully in the community. What it feels like Dallas has done, in my mind, is to say, you know, in, in, in our economic system, in our form of government, there's going to be winners and losers. Let's make sure that we have as many winners as possible who then we can urge to use their charitable dollars to help plug the holes that our governmental system has failed to plug because it is agreed with this system of making sure that we have a, a, a good business environment. And that's, that's not good government. It's, it's not good culture. It's, uh, it, it's, it's like the Gilded Age again in which we're saying Let's let's celebrate these uh, individual success stories and these um, you know great uh, wealthy people, and then when they give back to the community, we get to celebrate them again uh, because they they've been charitable. Well, I want them to be charitable, but I also want them to actually work for the kind of government that says we can listen to everybody's voices, whether you're rich or poor. And that, that we want uh, we want streets and sidewalks and and neighborhoods of integrity in every part of this city, regardless of whether the houses are you know a hundred thousand or um, you know two million. Uh, th that's what that's what city government should be about. Should yeah should be. There's so many so many aspirational words that you're using, and I fall into the same. 
the same trap. The uh, you know a lot of a lot of our budgeting is what I would call fear based, and uh, fear based decision making almost always is uh, is going to be poor. Um, the the our entire culture has this system of uh, creating fear of other people. Um, you know the the entire nextdoor.com uh, website is 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 really simply designed to uh, promote fear within neighborhoods uh, of crime. And crime is, of course, just a code word for black people, basically. Um, and so the the result and and everyone watches Dick Wolf shows on TV and uh, crime dramas and this that and and the true crime. Um, genre in podcasting is is yet another form of this this culture of fear. The result of which, and it's really n- very transparent to anybody who's ever had to deal with a city budget or a state budget or a federal budget. It is all advocacy for security, policing, military spending in these budgets. And until I think until we sort of acknowledge that what we're doing is stirring up our own emotions against people that we see as uh, problematic in one way or another. It, it's so odd that we have this dual uh, prejudice against black people as both being less than, but also in terms of safety and security, so mu- so scary. Like, wh- which is it? Are they, <laughs> are, you know, are they are they less than we are, or are they an existential threat? I don't think both of those things go together. And you know, we've had on this show um, the the great Jerry Hawkins and Amber Sims come on, and. I'm, I fall into the trap of thinking that technocratic solutions to problems are the way to approach uh, government. Because I, in general, the people who elected me said, you know, use data to make good policy. And their point is not that those interventions are valueless. It's that they are a, a very incomplete answer. And the thing that they demand um, and I think this is something that moral and religious leaders can demand, is a reckoning. Uh, before we start talking about policy, we, we reckon with the damage that we've done and the really negative racist ideas we all still are affected by. Because you just you can't really grow up in the United States without being affected one way or another by those ideas. You, you may be, uh, you know, Gandhi, uh, Buddha, someone who is capable of rejecting bad ideas uh, simply because they're set, uh, evidently bad. But most of us are just not that cool, you know? And I, I, I find it, I, this is one of those things where I really felt like I had a very incomplete answer when I started in public work. Um, and I'm starting to see that these calls for reconciliation and confrontation and, and some stuff that's uncomfortable really are a precursor and a, and a necessary prerequisite to having uh, real conversations about where to spend the money. Yes, and I, I do think that there have been some uh, attempts to recognize that. Um, 
you know, I, I remember vividly when uh, Mayor Mike Rawlings apologized for Santos Rodriguez. Uh, it's one of the best things he did. It, it really was, and I was present in that uh, room at that time. And, you know, I mean, things like that are good, but at, at the same time, you know, what, what we're trying to say here and what Jerry and Amber are trying to say is, yes, we need, a, we need to reckon with our history and we need to be honest about it and we need to repent of it. Uh, that this, religious leaders are supposed to understand repentance. And uh, that repentance is, is to say something more than just, I'm sorry, let's move on. <laughs> but I'm sorry, now let's repair what damage was done and has been perpetuated because of that, uh, that sin uh, that was uh, committed against you. And let's restore and repair as best we can. Well, now, once you do that, this is why many people don't really want to go there, because they intuitively know that there's more than just a, a personal sorrow for what happened, but there is an obligation that should follow, uh, that there is repair work to be done. And that's costly. That's going to change the way we do things. It, it can't just be, uh, I don't have any animus in my heart anymore. Please forgive me for you know, what I once did or what my ancestors did. Uh, but now let's, let's move on as if the ground is now level. When it's not, and it's not because we intentionally made decisions long ago uh, to make it uh, unlevel. And so, uh, so yeah, I think, I think this is, is part of why uh, you know, we're looking at investing in certain areas and all of that, but then we, what, you know, what Jerry and Amber and others are, are saying is, look, when you come into these areas, whether it's Fair Park or wherever, you know, let's make sure that we're asking the neighbors who live there, what is, what is it they really want, not what do we want for them? And that's been the way that we've, we've often gone about things. So. Um, yeah, so I think I think there's there's a lot of work to be done there, and it can be done. I think that's the thing that we have to recognize. It's painful, but it can be done. That last part I think is critically important because with particularly with homelessness, um, and it, all of these things have racial components. Homelessness is 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 vastly dominated by people of color, um, but it, people I think. Many, many people have a very sincere fatalism about homelessness and about race relations and about crime, and they, they, their imagination does not admit of any ultimate solution or even any real um, long-term improvement. And I, I, I you know... Where people find inspiration is different for everybody, but historically, the the church has been, you know, supposed to be a source of inspiration. And if we can, I don't know, I hate to be super uh, touchy-feely or metaphysical about it or whatever, but it, in the same way that Jerry and Amber are calling for uh, an honest discussion and... Um, a redressing of past grievances and, and a real consciousness raising. I think that our imagination has become so pinched and constrained 
by um, repeated failure that we, we, we could use some inspiration, we could use some hope. Right, right, absolutely. And you know, I'm going to go back to the churches, my church's decision about inclusion of LGBTQ persons uh, and, and say, you know, we had to have an honest conversation that said that we were not treating people uh, fairly and uh, that that was a problem. And, uh, and we've, had, we've had other reckonings like that. For example, during the time of Ebola, uh, we really tried to step up and, um, and care for Louise Tro, uh, who uh, was the fiance of Eric Duncan mm-hmm. Ebola. And uh, we wanted to be the kind of church that was going to fight fear with faith in that particular case. And we had to reckon with the fact that during the AIDS crisis in uh, the 80s, we had not done so well. We uh, actually had turned out, um, you know, a, 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 a child who uh, had the HIV virus and would not allow him to come to Sunday school because we, uh, we thought that, you know, the parents were afraid. And, uh, you know, uh, ignorance at that time of the science and understanding that the disease is one thing, but we, we knew that we sort of blew that. You know, yes, we helped the family and we, you know, we did a lot of things, but the, the congregation was still operating more out of, uh, of fear than faith about that, even when we knew that there wasn't a danger. Uh, and so uh, we gave in and we just, we had a reckoning and we decided that that was not the way we were gonna treat Ebola. Uh, and uh, I, I think similarly with, uh, with ourselves about that. And the, you know, the outcome is, 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 is a, a, a joy of do reckon with uh, the past and say, we're going to change. We're actually going to be different. Uh, we experience a new sense of community as a result of all of that. I, it's, a, it, it's such a hard thing to um, get, get your head around the idea that being wrong um, and changing is is really the best you can do. You know, none of us want to be wrong. Um, and it, the, I have, you know, when, when you're in a position of public leadership at a church, in a government, in a business, um, you know, you have a lot of opportunities for people to tell you you're wrong. And the more of those that you listen to, I think the, the better, more responsive, more effective you become as a leader. And, you know, getting unwrong as quickly as possible is that I think that that is just has so much more value than tenaciously holding on to a a belief or a position that that may have weaknesses because they all do. They all have weaknesses. Why why is it changing your mind about something for the better a virtue? Uh, It's almost like in in uh, in in almost every sphere. Uh, we have to depend upon you to have the same view always. Uh, and I, I just think that 
you know, uh, science operates off of the idea that when the data changes uh, and we recognize that the previous theory is no longer applicable, that, that hypothesis, we have a new hypothesis. We have a new uh, operating principle because the data tells us from these tests that uh, we need to think of it differently. Well, why is that not true in every aspect of our lives uh, where we, we change our mind for the better? And that's a virtue. Well, I, you know, um, in politics, it's called, you know, flip-flopping or whatever. Um, and, in, you know, historically in religion, it's called heresy. So, <laughs> you know, that, I, I think it, it's a, I, I, I always enjoy uh, talking with you about these issues, George, and uh, your, your heretical conclusion to our discussion is, is, is greatly appreciated. We'll, we'll be calling the SBC now. Okay, that's great. Well, uh, they won't know where to find me because I'm no longer on their roll. <laughs>